Good morning. It's so good to see you all here today. Uh, the sun is getting up earlier, and each of you have chosen to get up this morning and to honor God by being here in church and allowing him to work in you so that you grow and um, mature in the faith, which is a wonderful thing. So whether you are a regular attender, we're so glad you're here to see friends that we know so well, or if you are a new visitor, maybe you've been here a couple weeks, if you want to communicate with us, you can grab the card in the back of the chair in front of you and fill that out, give it to the usher on the way out, and we will communicate with you this week to get to know you a little bit better and to help you get to know us a little bit better as well. Um, if you're here online, last week I left out my online people. If you're watching online, hello, we're so glad that you're joining us from all the different places that tune in to hear uh, the word of God spoken at Victory Life Church. We're so glad you're here. If you are a regular attender um, and you have come this morning and you would like to honor God with the blessings that he's given you, there are three ways that you can do this at church. You can text to give, you can email, or not email, you can go online at vlchurch.com, or you can see one of the ushers on the way out. Uh, that's a way for us to honor God. You guys have all chosen to honor God with your time this morning, and some of you guys will honor God with the blessings that he has given you. All right. We are going to be gathering as a church this coming Friday to pursue God to seek after him, and to have him do his work in us. We are very excited about having this Pursue Night Friday, March 10th at 6.30. It will be a time of worship, a time to seek the Holy Spirit, and to allow him to work in us and through us. We are very excited about this, and we're hoping that you're all joining us for this event. At the end of the evening, we will have... Uh, some wings, I've been told, and some sports um, viewing, and just a lot of really great fellowship. So we hope that you can all be here for this Pursue Night this Friday, March 10th at 630. Uh, there is child care available for that, and we encourage all ages to come. So if you have, you know, teenagers or middle schoolers, they can come and join in. We have child care for the younger ones as well. So there's no reason to not join in the pursuit of God this Friday. The third announcement we have today is about baptism. You have all honored God with your time being here and with your resources and you're wanting to grow in him. And a lot of you have made that commitment through baptism. The Bible calls us to be baptized to show that we have decided to follow Jesus to the community around us. And we see this many times in the Bible where people hear the word of God and then immediately want to be baptized. Some, it takes a while longer for them to be ready to step out in their faith. But we will have an opportunity for you to be baptized April 30th. It's a wonderful opportunity to say, I am joining in the story. I'm going to join in this story that God has called me into, and I want everyone around me to know that. Um, it is an awesome opportunity, and we encourage you to be a part of that. So if you have not been baptized and you would either like to learn more or you would like to be baptized, you've decided that, yes, I'm ready to do this, you can sign up, go on to vlchurch.com, 
And if you scroll down, there's a big banner. Click the banner. To, it says Get Baptized. And you can click that banner and fill out some forms, and we'll be in contact with you. But that's coming up April 30th. Uh, as we're all here wanting to learn and grow together, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer before we worship. Dear God, thank you so much that you are the one that has drawn us here, that you are the one who loves us so much to, to grow us and to change us. Thank you that your spirit guides us and that we have freedom in Jesus. We love you so much. Amen. Lord, we've come to worship you this morning. Pray that you open up the heavens, Lord, because we want to see you.
Lord, we come before you, Lord, and we are declaring this word this morning because we know it and we believe it.
stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Lord, we just thank you. <laughs> you are the way maker. Lord, you know everything. You know what to do on our behalf whenever we need it. Lord, you are still working miracles today. Lord, whatever we have need of, it is not a problem for you. And Lord, you are a promise keeper. Lord, if you've spoken a word to us, it will come to pass. And Lord, we thank you for this. Lord, we thank you we can come before your altar. Lord, we can surrender all to you. For you are there with arms open wide, ready to receive us. So Lord, we come and we bow before you at your altar this morning. We thank you we can meet you there. Do you thirst for? 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. For Jesus was tempted in every way, such as we, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us approach boldly the throne, that we might receive mercy and grace in our hour of need. Lord Jesus, we thank that you, that you call us sinners to approach you, that we can come before your throne and make an altar 
a place where we say to you, God, we cry out and need you. We have not lived as we ought, nor have we acted as we ought. But Lord, we need you to give us better than we deserve and to pour out your blessing and grace upon us. Lord, we thank you today that we have sang about that invitation, the invitation to come to you in whatever hour of need we are in and find that you are gentle and humble in heart, ready to receive us and restore us to communion with the Father. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in this place today that don't believe they can return to the Lord, that they don't believe that they, they have any right to come before the throne and ask your forgiveness and your mercy. I pray that they would know that the Lord Jesus has given them every right. For he died on the cross for their sins. And he has washed away those sins with his blood, making it possible for us to approach the Father once more. Brothers and sisters, you can approach the Lord whatever you've done. We thank you for this truth today, this truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. I just get tickled every time we get to sing songs about God's grace and mercy in light of our sin. Because that's the very essence and the basis of our faith. And boy, that's the place that we first met God when we recognized that he wanted us to be part of his family in spite of ourselves. What a blessing. Thank you, worship team. Young disciples, you may be dismissed at this time to head on down the hall and hang out in Acts 19 with us. We're going to be doing that in here while you do that in there. We're excited for you. And for those of you who missed the queue, we're going to be in Acts 19 this morning. We have been on this journey through the book of Acts as we look at the four missionary journeys of Paul. And the good news is we are finally to the third missionary journey. We're going to end this thing eventually, but God's teaching us so many wonderful principles from his word. I kind of don't want to quit because it's really exciting the things that we've been learning in the book of Acts. I've been having a recurring dream for 20 years. 20 years. No, it's not that one where I go to school in my underwear. Uh, had that one, eighth grade Ohio history, but that's not the dream I reference. The dream I reference, I'm sitting in the dressing room of the Cuyahoga Falls Auditorium in the men's dressing room in front of that mirror. You ever seen those old style mirrors that have the light bulbs all around them, like in Hollywood? We had a mirror like that, and I'm sitting there and I'm pouring over my script for a musical in which I was the lead. Once upon a time, I played the lead Tevia in Fiddler on the Roof. And I, I, I still have this recurring dream where I'm feeling the pressure of being the lead actor in this, in this play. Now, that didn't really happen. There's not that moment in my life's history where I was sitting there in front of the mirror spazzing, you know. But I did see one of those moments once. Years earlier, I had been in a play at the high school and I was waiting in the wings, and the play was supposed to start, but the curtain was not being drawn. And I thought, what in the world is going on? And all of a sudden, I heard our, our director exclaim some expletives that I cannot repeat here. And he runs across the stage into the other wings and out the side door into the hallway. 
I thought, where is he going? And why did he swear like that? Got us all a little bit concerned. So the curtain still doesn't go up. The audience, you can feel the tension in the room. The curtain hasn't gone up. It's, it's 7 o'clock. Why hasn't the curtain gone up? So I just thought, well, I'm not standing here anymore. So I crossed the stage, and I went through the other wings, and I went out the door. And there I saw on the floor of the hallway the lead actress in the play having a panic attack. She was on the floor hyperventilating and crying and trying to pull herself together and shaking. And there's people trying to console her. I'm late to the party, and I just went like this. And I stared, because that's what you do when you see a train wreck, right? You just stare at it, you know? So I just stared for a while. There's no, no words of comfort that I was right off for. Everybody's trying to, to get her calmed down, because in essence, we can't go on without her. She's the lead actress in the whole play. If she doesn't if she doesn't, you know, rise to the occasion, if you will, we're, we're, all, we're all sunk. There won't be any play. So it took about 10, 15 minutes, and I don't remember. Some people thought it was blood sugar. They went and got an orange juice from the cafeteria. Some people thought she needed a drink of water. Maybe she was dehydrated. I just think it was the pressure of being the lead actress, right? There was nothing more that needed to be done. So eventually... We, we got her all calmed down. We went into a side room. We all encouraged her that we were happy she could do it. The director, who had just said a bunch of bad words, prayed over her. And, <laughs> and we went on. Because you can't go on stage without the lead. You can't, you can't get started without the lead. We're going to get into the third missionary journey today. And we're going to see a repeat of something that took place all the way back in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus tells his disciples, do not begin to witness to me until you have the lead, if you will, on stage. This is going to happen again 18 chapters later in a city of Ephesus where we see one of the weirdest and zaniest stories in all of Scripture, a story which there is no precedent for in the rest of Scripture. It's the only time we're going to see events like this in all of the Scripture. And so we're going to have to unpack this today but I just want to let you know today, the reason that I've shared these stories is very simple. The gospel must not move forward without the right lead. Christians ought not get onto the stage of witnessing to Christ unless the lead is in position. And that's what the third missionary journey start is all about. We're going to read as Paul has made his way through Asia Minor, what we know as modern-day Turkey, to the very tip of the coast, to a very famous city called Ephesus. One that he's visited shortly, or short, for a short time before, one that is just beginning to understand the implications of the gospel, and a place that he is going to stay and have ministry success for two years. Let's read Acts chapter 19, verse 1 and following. And it happened that while the evangelist Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country of Asia Minor and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was coming after him, that is Jesus on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, 
reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's what early Christians were called, the way, before they were called Christians, before the rest of the Jewish congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, Rex. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Both Jews and Greeks. Now, I'm not going to bury the lead here. Let me tell you why this story is particularly peculiar. This is the only known rebaptism in all of Scripture. I get this question pretty regularly. Should I get rebaptized? Maybe I was baptized as an infant, or maybe I was baptized years ago because I was feeling something, but then I didn't serve Christ for years and years, and, and should, I, should I now get rebaptized because it didn't stick the first time, you know? But this is the only rebaptism that we have in all of Scripture, but this rebaptism has everything to do with God's Holy Spirit. Something's missing here when Paul encounters these disciples. Now, I want to make two notes. These men are called disciples. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew, in Matthew 28. Go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are disciples, and they are believers. Believers, which means they believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ already. But somehow, in Paul's interaction with them, he recognizes that a key element of the gospel and a key element of who they are to be as Christians is absolutely missing. As the great 20th century Bible scholar F.F. Bruce put it, there was nothing to show they had received the Holy Spirit. There was nothing to show that they had received the Holy Spirit. But whatever is missing in these men, whatever Holy Spirit is, whatever it is, it spawns and brings about the only rebaptism in all of Scripture. Paul is concerned that these men have not received the fulfillment of their salvation. I didn't say that they weren't saved. Maybe a better way of putting it would be these men had not yet received the fullness of their salvation. That's what was missing here. Now, to kind of understand this, we have to go backwards into this John who was referenced. Paul says, what kind of baptism were you baptized with? Which is kind of a funny question, right? You don't hear a lot of, a lot of different types of baptism. What, what were you baptized into? They said, we were baptized like John baptized people. Maybe they had even been baptized by John on a trip to Jerusalem. We don't know. But, but the idea for John was a baptism, Paul says, of repentance, telling people to look forward to the one who is to come. Remember what John said about that? John the Baptist himself, the forerunner to the Messiah, the one who was turning the hearts of people back to God, getting them ready for Jesus, said, I baptize you with water but the one who, for repentance, but the one who is coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Remember, when you say fire in church, you have to pronounce it far. Otherwise, it loses all of its gusto, all right? So John is, is saying that, and that's a refiner's fire, and that's what we're talking about today, but this baptism, this immersion in the Holy Spirit signifies kind of the same thing that baptism in water does. That the baptism in water says, my old life is, is gone. I'm being washed and made clean. I, I'd like to, to sink that like a ship, and I'd like to be raised to new life. 
In the same way the Holy Spirit baptizes us, he immerses us, the old life is gone, and we are raised to new life in him. So Jesus says to his disciples regarding this same Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 and following, he says, listen, I've I've died, I've risen from the dead, I'm not staying here, you guys are going to build my church, but wait here in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon you, and you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses unto Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So these disciples were told to wait for the lead before they went out and started witnessing to Jesus. They were told to hold on a minute. You need the, the, the spirit who he says about in John, the Father will send in my name who will lead you into all truth, words of Jesus. He says you need the spirit to come upon you in order to begin this mission. In the same way, Paul gets to Ephesus, and he looks at these guys, guys who have believed on the name of Jesus, people who have repented, people who are disciples. They want to know more about following Jesus with their life. And he looks at them and says, and diagnoses, something here is missing. Something here is missing. Now, we've been to Corinth, and we've been to Athens, we've been to Berea, we've been to Pisidian Antioch, we've been to Thessalonica, we've been to Philippi, we've been to Lystra, to name a few. But only here in America... Forgive me, Freudian slip. Only here in Ephesus have people come to faith in Christ, repented and been baptized, but not have been instructed as to the role of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Only here in Ephesus do we see this. Now, we know that they were instructed regarding the Holy Spirit in places like Corinth and Thessalonica because we have the books written to them. We have the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians. We have the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. We know the Spirit's activity within those churches. It's defined in Scripture. But here in Ephesus, a a large deal is made about this encounter with these 12 or so folks who were already believers before Paul begins to go into the synagogue, before he begins to do his normal thing. I go into the synagogue. I go ahead and I tell them Jesus is the Messiah. Then the God-fearers, the the ones who have become Jewish, who are Gentiles, they hear it. And then we'll we'll go to the wider audience of the Gentiles. Before we get to any of that, we have this long discourse about these 12 or so disciples. We don't know that they were the only disciples in all of Ephesus. We don't know why he encounters them outside of the synagogue. We get no more to the story. But Luke wants us to know that Paul diagnosed a major issue that needed to be addressed before he could begin what he would normally do in one of these cities. He has to make sure that the believers in Ephesus have been immersed in the Holy Spirit. Now, this should not surprise us. At least it shouldn't surprise us if we'd read the Old Testament. Because Ezekiel lets us know that this is to happen. Isaiah lets us know that this is to happen. Joel lets us know that this is to happen. Jeremiah lets us know that this is to happen, that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on people when the new covenant begins. It's all over the Old Testament. There's the expectation that this will take place. But for some reason, this was missing. We don't know if the evangelist Apollos, who had been there first, just didn't know. Or we just don't know if these folks were just infants in the faith who needed more instruction. But perhaps the greatest illustration of this being spoken about in the Old Testament, or at least my favorite, comes from Numbers chapter 11. Moses is in the wilderness with the people, and he hears through Joshua, there's other people prophesying, but besides you, Moses, 
And Moses utters some of the funniest and most famous words in all of the Old Testament. Moses says to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. I would be thrilled, says the man of God, if everybody had a dispensation of the spirit the way I have a dispensation of the spirit and they could speak from the Lord. Wouldn't that be swell? Wouldn't that be great? And there in the latter prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel go, yeah, that's going to happen. That's what the Messiah is going to bring. He's going to bring, bring an age in which no longer does a man have to teach his neighbor saying, know the Lord, but we will all know the Lord because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We cannot make enough of this. We can't minimize this. We have to hear the words of the Old Testament, the words of Jesus, the words of John the Baptist, the words of Paul and the writings of Luke, and we bring this confluence together to say there was a reason that Paul took such an enormous step of rebaptizing these men, because it's enormous. We don't see it anywhere else. But he rebaptizes them in the name of the Lord Jesus. He lays hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. They receive the fullness of their salvation that had been prophesied about, that had been talked about from the time of John, Jesus, and Paul to this very day. That's what's taking place here. And it's unique to Scripture. Paul recognizes that these men have not come into the fullness of their salvation and he doesn't want to begin the play, if you will, in Ephesus until the lead actor is invited onto the stage. D.A. Carson speaks of this dispensation of the Spirit this way, D.A. Carson being one of the most famous uh, living Bible scholars in the world. He says, throughout this age, this new covenant of Christianity, the Christian personally knows the Lord by the Spirit. The believer senses him, enjoys his presence, communes with him, the Spirit, in a Christocentric fashion, manifests himself in and to the believer, and the believer, in turn, shows the Spirit. Now, for those of you who run around in church circles, you know there's a lot of different denominations and a lot of different movements. They are all represented, like right here, in this interdenominational church, like right here. Everybody's here. Everybody's here. We got your Baptists, we got your Catholics. We got your Pentecostals, we got your Charismatics, we got your Methodists, we got your Church of Christ folks. If I missed you, sorry, right? We got you, oh, CMA folks. I see a CMA guy smiling at him, right? We got people from all over the place, right? Right? We got all these different traditions, and we all, all come from these different places, right? And, and, and I just want to say, this fellow, D.A. Carson, he's not, he, I'm, a, I'm a charismatic, I'm a proud charismatic, but D.A. Carson's not a charismatic. He's, he's not like, he's not hanging from chandeliers and having a great time every Sunday, right? Right? Which I, 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 we don't have any chandeliers. Maybe we should get some so I can hang from them. But long story short, long story short, th this is just your, your normal run-of-the-mill, I'm in the middle of all of Christianity in the dead center Bible scholar. Every Christian knows the Lord by the Spirit, senses him, enjoys his presence, communes with him, and in a Jesus-focused fashion, the Holy Spirit manifests himself in and to the believer, and the believer in turn shows the Spirit. Now, that word, let's put that, let's put that quote back up there for just a second, if we can. Thank you. That Christocentric is really important because the Holy Spirit's presence is, is and it, it fits right here in, in, the, in the place, place here in Ephesus. The Holy Spirit's presence is not primarily intended for the Christian to feel something. 
Christian does, the Christian ought to feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, but ultimately the presence of the Spirit is meant to witness to Jesus in a Christocentric fashion. And therefore, if the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church as it is in Ephesus, the idea is that we're intending results for the gospel. So if we get to the point that we're filled with ecstatic speech, which we'll talk about in just a moment, if we get to the point that God really pours out his spirit on all flesh in such a way that we would all go, we all felt the presence of the Lord today, and boy, did he speak. That should result in witness, and that should result in people getting saved. Let's go down to the very bottom of this particular passage to make sure that we see the results in Ephesus. Look at verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Ephesus becomes a major Christian center the way Jerusalem and Antioch became major Christian centers. The effect here is massive, but Paul does not want to begin his ministry until the lead actor, the Holy Spirit, has been called to the stage to direct affairs. So, you might say, well, what's the formula, Pastor Matt? Is, are you going to dra- grab a formula out of Acts chapter 19 for us to receive the Holy Spirit in the way that these men receive the Holy Spirit? And I would say to you, no, for a simple reason. The formula is different in Acts chapter 2 as it is different in Acts chapter 8 as it is different in Acts chapter 10 as it is different in Acts chapter 19. When the Holy Spirit falls upon the church in Acts chapter 2, they're in a prayer meeting. So let's all come to the prayer meeting. We'll have the Holy Spirit fall upon us, right? Friday night, A.J. reminds us, right? Come to the prayer meeting, Friday night at 6.30, which we're hoping the Holy Spirit falls upon us because then things will change and then Jesus will be glorified. Second, in Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans believe but they don't receive the Holy Spirit upon their belief. So John and Peter, they go to Samaria, and the Bible tells us that they laid hands on them. Holy Spirit-filled believers lay their hands on on the shoulders and the head of other believers, praying that they would receive the Holy Spirit, and they receive the Holy Spirit. That's Acts chapter 8. It's Acts chapter 8. When we have different prayer services, different services here, different pursue nights, we always station our elders around the room that they may lay hands on your shoulder or on your head and pray for you, both for healing, if that's what you need, direction, if that's what you need, but the Holy Spirit come upon you if that's what you need. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that this is so normal in the faith that I would love you to read the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 6, where he says, let us now move on from the elemental teachings of the faith. He includes the, 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 the resurrection of the dead of Jesus, he, he, he includes the death of Jesus, and he includes the laying on of hands. It's just normal. It's just normal for Christians to put their hands on the shoulder or the head of another believer and pray God's best for them and that the Holy Spirit come upon them. The writer of Hebrews says that's elemental teaching. So that happens in Acts 8. Acts chapter 10. Do you know when Cornelius' household demonstrate and show the Spirit? At the moment of belief. No baptism that has yet taken place. There's no laying on of hands. Peter is preaching. And whoosh, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then here here in Acts 19, we have the reception of the Holy Spirit related to baptism and the laying on of hands. So you say, what's the formula? I don't know. I do know, but I don't know the X, Y equals Z, because that's not the way God comes into our lives. 
If I were to look at each one of you and we were to have you come up one by one and give you 30 seconds, some of you would take 15, others of you would take 30 minutes, and that's why we don't do things like that all the time. But if I were to say, come and tell me how you came to faith, every one of your stories would be different. So what's the order of salvation? This has been the big question in theology for 2,000 years. Is it belief and then repentance or repentance and belief? Is it the Holy Spirit speaks and then you repent and then you believe? And then, what's the order on, in which you are completely converted to Christ? It's called the order of salutis. If you really want to get bored, go on Library of Christian Classics and read all about it today. All right? So, so we all came to faith with a different path. And in the same way, we don't have a one-size-fits-all approach to encouraging you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But if it's, this, if it's this important that Paul rebaptizes these men and lays hands on them, even though they're already disciples and they already believe, we should take note of that because ultimately the goal for any church is to become an Ephesus. That the word of God, verse 10, may emanate from, from this place and go out and, and reach more people. And people who have been filled with the Holy Spirit to lead witness. That takes place among them. So something's driving Paul here. Paul must give them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Jesus didn't die and rise again so that people can go on being in full control of their own lives. Only now they are believers. He died and rose again so that his Holy Spirit could now dwell with people and take control of their lives. Allowing the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead the same spirit that called you to salvation to now be the spirit that leads and guides you, that you personally know, that you sense, that you enjoy his presence, that you commune with him, that he manifests himself to you. That means shows up in, in, in a real and tangible way. And then turn, in turn, you show the spirit. Peter called this in Acts chapter 2 the gift and the promise. He said this gift is for all of you, and this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Let me reiterate one more time. These men had heard, believed, accepted, and followed the Lord Jesus. But there was nothing to show that they had received the gift and the promise. John the Baptist says you will be immersed in the Holy Spirit by Jesus. But there was nothing to show these men had been immersed in the Holy Spirit. So my question to us today is first and foremost this. Do we preach the gospel without the Spirit? Do we preach the gospel without the Spirit? And in turn, have you been immersed in the Spirit of God? Can you speak to a moment or moments in your faith where you understood and recognized the presence of God in a powerful and tangible way? That's the question. Because this was the question that Paul was posing to these men. Now what ends up happening in them is ecstatic speech. They speak in tongues and they prophesy. It comes out in a powerful, powerful way. In essence, the control that the Holy Spirit is taking in these men's lives or these women's lives is, is coming out in such a way that it is evident that he is now in control. And if I could say there was a theme throughout the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes on people, ecstatic speech, speech from outside of stasis, 
comes on them, and then they speak from the Lord. Now, the good news is all of you have already engaged in ecstatic speech. You say, well, Pastor Matt, I've never spoken in tongues, but you've already engaged in ecstatic speech. Pastor Matt, I've never prophesied, but you've already engaged in ecstatic speech. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says this. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, you all thought preaching Acts 19, everybody be speaking in tongues by the end of service today. But I'm going to get you to engage in ecstatic speech together right now. Can you join me in just a moment in saying Jesus is Lord with all of your heart? One, two, three. Jesus is Lord. Now, I don't know that that was ecstatic. I feel like that was just you responding to me. Now, let that well up in your heart for just a minute. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So I'm going to invite you to say it like you mean it. Not, not, not so, I can, so I can impose my will upon you, but just, just isn't it weird? Why, are we, why is that hard? Why is that tough? Why, is it, why can't we just say something forte in church? We'll try it again. One, two, three. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Yes, he is. He has saved us from our sins. He has made us new, and we can expect eternity in heaven with him. Jesus is Lord. You can't say that apart from the Holy Spirit, says Paul. You've already engaged in ecstatic speech. Now, I want to ask you, though, even though we did that just in this moment, what's going on between head and heart? I was talking to one of our elders about this this week, and we were talking about this idea of being immersed in the Holy Spirit, and he said, it's, it's like when God goes from tapping you on the shoulder to hitting you right in the heart. That moment that you know that he's absolutely real, and he's coming in, and he's going to take control in a way that you've never allowed him before. That's immersion in the Spirit. And oftentimes in Acts, we see that that comes about with ecstatic speech speaking in other languages, whether it be the tongue of men or the tongues of angels, whether it be prophesying. This happens to Saul. The Holy Spirit falls on King Saul in the Old Testament, and, and people, he begins to prophesy, he begins to speak the glories of God with all of his heart and all of his mind and all of his soul and all of his strength. He begins to just say all of these amazing things about who God is and what God has done. And people say, oh, is Saul now among the prophets? Well, Saul was just chasing some oxen. He wasn't even ready to have the Holy Spirit come on him, but when the Holy Spirit comes on him, something flows out of him, and that's what F.F. Bruce, and that's what D.A. Carson, and that's what Paul expects. That when the Holy Spirit comes on us, something comes out of us that shows the Spirit. And so what's the formula? Well, maybe it's prayer. Maybe, maybe for you it's really engaging heart, soul, mind, and strength in prayer, whether corporately or privately, for the very first time, or for the first time in a long time. Maybe it is that you need to come Friday night and for the first time humble yourself and say, I have need of more of the Lord, and to allow somebody to engage in that elemental thing, that simple teaching of a spirit-filled believer can lay their hands on my shoulder and my head and pray that God would immerse me in more of his presence and fullness. Maybe it is that you do need to be baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus because 
you have not really surrendered control to him yet. And if you need to be baptized into the Lord Jesus, if you've never been baptized, you need to do that. Jesus commanded it. And we have sign-ups on the way out in addition today. So you can hop online and do it, or you can sign up today so that we can get you baptized. Or maybe it's just that you need to put yourself in position in repentance, like what happened in Cornelius' house in belief, to be able to receive more of his spirit. I believe more people have probably received the Holy Spirit in this full and real way on their knees as in any other position. So I ask you, is your gospel a full gospel? Because Peter said, repent and believe every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Is your gospel the whole gospel? Have you been immersed in the Spirit? Let me ask you this. Have you ever, have you ever resisted ecstatic speech that glories in Christ? Have you ever had something well up in you that would cause you to praise and honor and glory in Christ and you go, and nothing comes? Yeah! Nope, not this time. I raise up! Can we give the Lord a shout of praise? Why are we so clenched up? Why are we so, I'm in control. Why will we not allow the Lord to have control of this right here? It's the hardest thing, isn't it? Go ahead, Lord, speak through me. Go ahead, Lord, I'll praise you. Go ahead, Lord, fill up my mouth. Go ahead, Lord. Even if it means that I would speak in a language not my own. Go ahead, Lord. Go ahead. Seems to be the pattern of Scripture. You have control now. I have humbled myself. Go ahead, Lord. Because if I truly feel your presence and I truly know your voice, I can truly bring that presence and voice to a lost and a dying world in need of Christ. My last question to you today. Would you consider forms of surrender if it meant a greater infilling? See, what I don't see these men doing in Ephesians chapter 19, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus, what I don't see them doing is saying, rebaptize us, why? No way, Paul. I've already done a trust fall into water before, don't need to do it again. They just get rebaptized. What we don't see. In Acts chapter 19, is Paul going, let me lay hands and pray on you, pray for you. Don't touch me. That's weird. Have you purelled? Just, yeah, go ahead. They're open to humbling themselves and surrendering, right? They're open. They're open. They're open. The first time I felt the Holy Spirit and I felt this infilling. I was 14 years old, and I was in the rafters of a basketball arena in East Lansing. And I've, I've told you all this story before. I just said, Lord, if you're real, you can have my life. It was a simple and eloquent prayer 
of a teenage idiot. And at that moment, as if somebody had pushed me from behind, I got out of my seat and my hands surrendered to the Lord like this. And I was screaming out worship choruses with all of my heart, telling the Lord I belong to him. And I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit keenly like that, time and time and time and time again. And it results in glorying in Christ, giving praise and honor to him to who it is due. But the beautiful nature of that is I get to enjoy the presence of God's Holy Spirit. I enjoyed that presence for the first time at 14. And at 38, I felt that same presence in my office an hour and 15 minutes ago. And it got me ready to come out here and tell you about my recurring dream. You can have that same relationship with the Lord and it comes with surrender. Surrendering your mouth, surrendering perhaps your physical body, surrendering a form of sin that you need to repent from, or surrendering yourself in humility in order to feel the presence of the Lord. But that's the fullness that we're to be walking in. Because the Bible tells us so. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Holy Spirit, we need you. Jesus said we needed you to guide us into all truth. Jesus said we needed you to witness to him. Jesus said we needed you to be our comforter and our friend. Jesus said we needed you to be our power in a lost and a dying world. And Jesus said that we shouldn't let our hearts be troubled because he was going to send another one just like him to live in us. So Lord Jesus, when we open ourselves to your spirit, we're opening ourselves to you. Oh Lord, would we consider today surrendering surrendering in our spirit you may come in and fill us up to overflowing. Today what I'd like you to do is not to follow a bunch of prompts from me, but to ask the Lord a simple question. Lord, what do you want me or where do you want me to surrender control? Where do you want me to humble myself? Because I want you to rush in and fill that void.
want you to speak through me, to act through me, and to be keenly felt. Oh, Lord, may we be a humble and surrendered people that you may fill us up to overflow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. To close our service today, I would like to just let you know that a couple of our elders and elders emeritus are going to just come up to the front today at the end of our time together. And if you would like to have someone lay hands on you and pray for you, we would just love to follow the words of Scripture. I'm going to ask Amanda if you'll come stay and just play some music for us. But I just want to invite you, if the Lord has said to you, you know, I, I, I want the presence of the Holy Spirit more and more in my life, and I would love somebody to pray for me, we want to do that for you today. We can't promise that this will be that day, but that act of humility and surrender is powerful. For the rest of you, we'd love to invite you back Friday night to Pursue Night. And what I'd love for you to consider if you're coming is asking the Lord when you walk into this sanctuary, Holy Spirit, fill up my mouth with speech that glories in Christ. And Holy Spirit, come and wash over me. We'll remind you of that on your way in because it's a long time to Friday. Would you stand? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your presence in this place today. And Lord, we pray that you continue to speak to your people. Lord, we should not be concerned or scared of your spirit. Lord, we should pursue him. We thank you for these truths today. Bless us now and dismiss us with your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.